1: And now back to
0: Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: And welcome back to the conversation. We continue our visit today in studio with Pastor Sam. He is here on a brief uh, visit on behalf of Mission India. As we pick up the conversation, we can say, okay, I live my life. I raise my family. I serve my God who died for me. Mm-hmm. And then I go on to a permanent, eternal, and never ending not cycle of frustration and hopelessness, but of reward, entering into the temple of all temples, You're right. in very heaven itself, with mm-hmm. very God himself. I mean, once that message is articulated, it's shared and explained, is it any wonder that, that the average Indian, the average Hindu would say, finally, now I see. That actually allows them to
2: think, you know, um, a lot, thought of thought process begins you know because they'd been doing something for years together mm-hmm. and suddenly you know somebody comes and tells that you know this is what is available here mm-hmm. and uh, that's what exactly they're looking for for years together where do i get this inter- internal peace where do i get that nirvana a kind of an eternal abode yes you know and you know i come and say you know this is what this is happens with the the life death and the resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ.
1: You talked earlier, Pastor Samuel, about the idea that there is a sense of some of the the old mainline denominational churches that are kind of cloistered. They're kind of behind the walls of the compound, so mm-hmm. to speak. And I think there are some strong comparisons with even the church in America, as much as we've traditionally, historically had a passion for moving beyond Judea into Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. We're still very self-focused on our programs and the numbers of people in the building project and what's the revenue look like this month and things of this sort. And and yet I'm wondering, clearly the message is going beyond the compound that there are churches and evangelists and pastors like yourself engaged in a movement of the Holy Spirit where either because of the efforts or sometimes in spite of the efforts of the church. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit of God is doing something phenomenal in India today, even with some of the stagnation, as you, as you suggest. We are still seeing one of the fastest-growing populations of the body of Christ in the continent of India today than anywhere else in the world. What do you attribute that to?
2: Uh, what, what does it imply, you know, uh, which means that God is at work? Okay, and uh, secondly, you know, the doors are wide opened. And the Word of God says, The harvest is plentiful and labors are few now what we need in in our country today is the laborers who are willing to go laborers who are willing to work hard in the in in the field of god mission india is an organization you know had been working in india for almost 30 years now and um, they have developed a program that would really take the Great Commission into the unreached places, the end places in our country for the last thirty almost three decades. For example, literacy. India, as you rightly mentioned right in the beginning, that you know people talk about Silicon Valley fully populated with Indians. You know, if you pick ten uh, most influential people or the richest people in the world there will be at least two Indian names or three Indian names there and we praise God for all that but that's not the India you know it's it's a country with a paradoxes. 69% of rural Indian women cannot read and write their own language wow. and India is supposed to be one of the most illiterate nation in the world as for the survey is concerned. So you have extremely intellectual, but at the same time, there are quite a big number of illiterates.
1: That, of course, makes the mission before the church a bit more challenging in the sense that, obviously, it complicates discipleship. If you lead someone to Christ, most naturally now want to teach them more about the Jesus whom they are following. What better vehicle but by God's word? And yet, if they're illiterate, that sets up a stumbling block. So there's more work that has to be done. There's a bigger challenge perhaps at some levels that the Indian church is facing as contrasted to do a church in the first world, you know, maybe in North America or wherever the case might be. But yet God is still, even with all of those barriers, doing some phenomenal work there. Phenomenal uh, things because
2: uh, the, the Indians, uh, provided we give them the truth in love, mm-hmm. they're already religious. We don't need to create a kind of a religious attitude in their life. They're already religious. As you also mentioned, you know, that
1: soil is actually prepared soil. If we can change or exchange, rather, the religion and the religiosity for relationship, mm-hmm. that also helps us to get a glimpse as to why we see such a tremendous sense of passion. You're right. I've attended yeah. Indian churches and seen preachers that, my goodness, just so on fire and full of God's word. Mm-hmm. We see the sense of the sacrifice that people within the Indian church are willing to make, the kind of persecution, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. that they are subjected to. We know especially in in parts of the north along the border with Pakistan and areas where there's a stronger Islamic influence. It's not uncommon to hear stories of churches that are literally burned down to the ground, pastors that have been kidnapped and and beaten and left for death. I mean, these kinds of stories that almost is reflective of the book of Acts early church, that level of persecution taking place in India today, but alongside it, too, a movement of the Holy Spirit and growth of the church, in spite of the fact that there's not Christian radio, there's not a lot of literacy, things of this sort, many of the, the trappings that we think of in the Western world that are necessary for evangelism, mm-hmm. we see holy absent from India, and yet in spite of that, God, by the very power of his Holy Spirit, moving and working amongst his people. So while we see Book of Acts-style persecution going on, we also see Book of Acts-style growth, don't we? Multiplication is happening. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: in India, like, uh, persecution is the sign of the church growth. Not only in India, I think if you uh, go through the the history, I mean, from the first century till today. Oh, almost anywhere. If you uh, anywhere, show me a place a on
1: planet Earth where the church is being persecuted for its faith, pastors are being arrested, evangelists are being jailed, yeah. almost without exception, I'll show you a place where the church is growing by Absolutely unfathomable numbers, but Mm -hmm. not just numerically, but also there's a spiritual depth uh, that is absolutely almost uh, without comparison. Mm -hmm. There's a love and passion for God and his word and a relationship with him. And again, I don't mean to suggest that this is demeaning of Western styles of Christianity, but if you are a Christian in India, you've counted the cost you're right. Haven't you? It demands. It demands that there be a price paid. Yes. And yet we know that the rewards are <laughs> in store literally, for us. you know, out of this world. Yeah. Uh, and so the church is willing to
2: pay that price. That, that's willing. You know, right now, one of our partners who works with us in the southern part of India, um, the last uh, one month, he's raising a lot of threats from uh, anti-Christian elements. Mm-hmm.
1: And these could be... Muslim in origin, they could be Hindu in origin. Yes.
2: They could be anybody, but you know, kind of an anti-Christian. Sure. They don't want to see church existing in that part of uh, um, the uh, country. And uh, that threatened him a number of times. And you know, they also gave him ultimatum saying that, you know, by so-and-so time, if you, I mean, a clear this place, we will be Killing you off. And Mm -hmm. you know, for the last couple of fortnights, he's literally hiding away from those places. Mm -hmm. But his wife gathered strength, courage, and she visited the area, you know, uh, last week just to see how his uh, church or uh, their church members are doing. Are they also threatened? Are they intimidated continuously by these people? So, The opposition, threatenings, animosity, prejudice, and all that, you know, are a day-to-day, I mean, like, it's kind of an everyday affair, if you really want to be a good Christian and, you know, uh,
1: uh, magnify Christ through your life. We'll take a brief time out in this juncture in the conversation. We'll come back to more of our look at what God is doing in India today. Our conversation with Pastor Sam from Mission India continues in just a moment here on this edition of Lifeline.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. And welcome back to The Conversation. We continue our visit today in studio with Pastor Sam. He is here on a brief uh, visit on behalf of Mission India. We mentioned at the start of our conversation today, Pastor Sam, about the phenomenal economic growth that Mm -hmm. India has been experiencing. And and perhaps only second to China are we seeing uh, just spurts of economic growth that are... uh, Absolutely unfathomable, certainly comparison to any other part of the world with the current economic challenges globally yep. that we've been seeing since the economic meltdown of 2008. Has this complicated any of the outreach for the church? In other words, are you seeing Western-style materialism coming in that now is complicating the message of the necessity for a relationship with Christ? Um, when uh,
2: 2008, you know, when the Financial situation gone into volatile um, situation like uh, some of the organizations which are exclusively dependent on the Western funding and you know things like that. I was told that you know they have almost come to a close. There are two different kinds of ministry happens in India. One is a program-oriented. One is a soul winning oriented. Anything that is program oriented, you know, once you know, the fund flow stops, they stop. But soul winning goes on
1: and on. And, and uh, I, this may come as no surprise to you, but it's very much the same way here in North America as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And you also find the one that tends to be more program oriented is much like the seed sown in the rocky soil. It may flourish for a slight season, or you may see what you think is growth that actually turns out to be a weed. And then the minute a test of a life storm comes along, it's quickly washed out to sea and bears forth no fruit at all. And yet the one that is focused on soul winning Mm -hmm. and discipleship and sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting God's Word, uh, those are the ministries that not only are planted in fertile soil; they not only survive but they thrive in the that's end. Right. You're right. What do you think um, is the biggest challenge facing India today? Um, there
2: are three uh, important issues. Actually, number one is literacy, as I mentioned. You know, that's a, uh, the greatest need in our country today. You know, um, because of uh, illiteracy, illiteracy, you have uh, poverty. Because of poverty, there is a spiritual darkness prevailing. And they're all interconnected. If the Indian rural women or men are educated or make a shift from illiterates to literates, there is a possibility of a social. Transformation, spiritual transformation, and also economical
1: transformation happening.
2: Women are treated uh, as a substandard human being.
1: Even as we've seen, certainly not all of the caste system disappear, but Dis- it certainly has changed very dramatically over the last uh, few decades.
2: Caste system is still existing in some uh, villages. Yes. Most of the villages in India, um, you know, uh, but. Again, the education, you know. It's changing that, things. That, Yeah. It but changed. you're still
1: noticing s- extreme degrees of challenges for women. Women,
2: you know, mm-hmm. there are, uh, a lot of atrocities are happening to them uh, in the name of dowry, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the biggest uh, social evil, you know. The government of India has banned the dowry system in 1961. They made a law against it. But even then, despite of all that, you still hear about uh, the dowry deaths almost every day in some part of country. One of the stories that we are mentioning about, you know, um, you know, who has gone through that agony. There are so many people of that, you know, uh, uh, classification. And uh, some of the Indian women cannot really speak out their pain, speak out their agony. Number one, because they're not educated. Number two, they're not earning members. Number three, the cultural barrier
1: is there. And it's interesting this this, this pull that's going on in Indian society yes. today then because you think of the struggle that women are facing and yet the influence of so much wealth because largely of the way the world economy has changed and the, the, the creation of the so-called Silicon Valley of India. Mm-hmm. And then you see the influence of... of, of just pure outright secularism through things like so-called Bollywood. Uh, I've seen some of the films and I think, you know, with the exception of maybe some of the dresses that are worn and the music, you would think that these productions are coming out of Universal or Paramount right. <laughs> in yeah. Hollywood, California and not in, in New Delhi. So it's interesting the way there's, there's a pull for the attention yes. of India in so many ways and at the same time that we see an increase in wealth and yet not a major shift yet in terms of opportunities or treatment of respect for women. Huge degrees of hunger for spirituality, explosive growth of the church, and yet some aspects of the more mainline denominational church still kind of behind the compound walls. Yes, it's, it's yeah. India today in many respects. Then economically, spiritually, remains this this very mysterious convoluted yeah. gathering of, of comparisons and contractions at so many different levels. It's fascinating. I think
2: this is a high time that, you know, these uh, compound-centered, the mainland denominations has to think beyond the box, come out with more vigor, more passion towards the Great Commission. And uh, when that happens, you know, the emerging churches and, you know, the other um uh, communities, you know, who who are involved in a kind of uh, evangelization of the unreached peoples in our country, Um, when that happens, we will be able to see that, you know, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess, you know, that
1: Jesus is the true living God. Take a moment, if you would, Pastor Sam, and share a bit of your passion with our listeners if you could have the opportunity to have a chance behind the pulpit at a church here in the bay area on a sunday morning to share what you would think would be the, the the biggest issue on your heart the message that you would like to share with the church in america about the church in india what would that be what would what would that passion or concern or observation be my passion and
2: my Uh, concern uh, as for the Indian church is concerned today is that they need to come back to Great Commission. As you rightly mentioned I think a couple of times in your uh, um, deliberations that you know uh, the acts of apostles has to be repeated. It's repeated actually. Only thing the mainline church has to realize it. You know we cannot just keep quiet when things are happening around we cannot be insensitive, you know, to you know, uh, the things that are happening around. That becomes foolishness. And when we become, uh, uh, when we are able to realize the prompting voice of the Holy Spirit, that this is the time, God is at work in India. I think we have to move forward because there may be a day when the doors will be closed. Mm. There may be a day when things will get much harder. But now they are wide opened. And people are responding more um, rapidly than ever before. And the Church of God back in India, mainly the, the denominational churches had to realize that this is not the compound that we think
1: about now. It's beyond that. There is ultimately a message here for the church in America, too. As Pastor Sam articulates, there is a window of opportunity right now where there is a tremendous sense of of hunger and desire and openness to the gospel, even as we see the push of materialism bearing down upon India in, in so many ways, yet utter degrees of poverty at the same time. And yet the biggest challenge that India faces is no different than the challenge we face here in America or anywhere on planet Earth. And that is a poverty of the heart and a poverty of the soul, the malnutrition that we experience because we do not know Him, we do not serve Him, or if we know Him, we serve Him only within the confines of the compound. And I think as Pastor Sam is suggesting, it's time to throw open wide the door and understand the need to respond to opportunities to share the gospel. And to stand shoulder to shoulder with the church in India, just as we've stood shoulder to shoulder with each other inside the compound, to now do that outside the compound, to, to engage in that appreciation for what it means to not just to have a heartbeat and a passion for Judea, but then understand that the Great Commission didn't end there. It began there, as we are then mandated to move from Judea to Samaria and to India and the uttermost parts of the earth. If you'd like to find out more information about the work of Pastor Sam and the amazing things that God is doing throughout the entire continent of India, let me direct you toward Mission India's website. It's an easy one to remember. That's missionindia.org, missionindia.org. If something you've heard in today's conversation with Pastor Sam has really touched your heart and you'd like to see and explore ways in which you and or your church congregation can stand shoulder to shoulder with people like Pastor Sam and the work that God is doing in the continent of India today, why don't you consider reaching out to Mission India? They've got a Speakers Bureau that could happily provide someone to come to your church and share more of not just the amazing things that God is doing in India today, but the amazing opportunity that the Lord and responsibility places before us today to be engaged in, again, sharing of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, it isn't how hard we work to try to reach up to God it's the understanding that God came down that will change the world. More information again on the web at missionindia.org. That's missionindia.org. And Pastor Sam, we so much appreciate you taking some time uh, out of your travel schedule to be with us here. Welcome again to America. And we're going to be praying for you and your ministry there. Uh, speed and keep up the good work. Thank you. Pleasure is mine.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You know, you look at the headline news of the last, my goodness, six, eight months or so, and it just seems like no matter where you turn, we're seeing incidences of racial unrest, (laughs) massacres in churches, economic imbalance, social strife, on and on the list goes. Hard sometimes, perhaps, to see hope and justice and reconciliation in the midst of this turmoil. A lot of people, I think, have concluded that we're If not in, we're certainly rapidly heading toward the end days. And meanwhile, we wonder, well, what does that mean for us from a faith perspective? How can we better find places in which not only God is working to bring about healing and restoration, but most importantly, feel as if the work, the job that we do is significant toward that end? Warren Smith joins us now, vice president of World News Group, and perhaps you are a subscriber to his wildly popular World Magazine. He's authored more than 10 best-selling books, including the most recent, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And Warren, great to have you on the program.
0: Great, great to be on with you. Thank you so
1: much. It is hard sometimes not to be discouraged. And just as we sort of uh, reach the point that we seemingly have processed the significance of yet another major negative news event, uh, sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, here comes one more. And I think for a lot of people, not only do you kind of get a sense that your, your, your hope meter is, is wearing out in all of this, but that you're, you're wondering, well, where exactly is God in all of this? And, and is there any hope in which I can play some kind of small role in engaging in some kind of significant, important change in our society today?
0: Well, you're exactly right, Craig, and you know, it, it, you don't have to look any farther than the headlines, that's exactly right, to see um, bad news. I mean, the Supreme Court rulings have been really discouraging to a lot of Christians. Uh, we see ISIS uh, just murdering Christians all over the Middle East. I mean, you're, you're right, I mean, there's plenty of reason uh, to, um, to say uh, that we live in serious times. But, uh, we, uh, as Christians are not allowed to despair. Despair is a sin. Uh, despair means we've given up hope. And of course, Christians of all people should be people of hope. Uh, faith, hope, and love, Jesus, uh, or, or uh, uh, the Bible says, not Jesus per se, but the Bible says are the, the three chief Christian virtues. And so that's one of the reasons why John Stone Street and I uh, wanted to write this book, Restoring All Things, because as we have been looking out at the world at all these negative uh, stories, we've also been been seeing something just quite remarkable, and that has been God's people doing God's work in the midst of all the chaos that's going on around us. And when God's people do that, when God's people it, it just don't get distracted and continue to engage in God's work, which is loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, it's amazing what's happening. We've seen communities transformed, we've seen lives rebuilt, we've seen entire cities uh, transformed. It's it's in the case of Atlanta or Detroit. Um, uh, Atlanta, an organization called SCS Urban Ministries, and in Detroit, a ministry called Emmanuel Temple, which are two organizations that we profile in restoring all things. So we wanted to tell some of those stories because we felt like Christians did need some hope, in the midst of these chaotic
1: times. So, at the end of the day, is it less about the news events and more about perspective? And I, and I asked that question because, again, you know, we were kids. Uh, we all were raised in school to uh, to master the three basic r s reading, writing, and arithmetic. Something always told me that one of those words at least was misspelled <laughs> right. but from from a from a christian perspective there 's another set of three r s that I think we can 't forget that in fact is foundational to our very faith, which is what leads me to this question about perspective, and that is another set of three r s Redemption, reconciliation, and restoration, which is foundational to God's plan for not only mankind here on earth, but certainly the role that that uh, that Christ played in world history.
0: Yeah, well, that that's exactly right. You know, in fact, I'm glad you brought up those three R's because there are, in fact, many more than those three R's in Scripture. We in fact we begin near the beginning of the book. We talk about the rewords of Scripture, and you've mentioned three of them. Uh, there. Uh, too often, however, Christians focus on another set of R's, which are words like rebuke and resist and, uh, engage in those activities that, um, are trying to hold back the tide of chaos. Whereas, uh, I think if we focus more on the three R's that you mentioned, R's like reconciliation and restoration and redemption, uh, we, we become people who um, not only are actively engaged in the work that God is calling us to do, this this activity of of restoring all things to himself, but we are also presenting a witness to the world that I think they will find compelling. You know, it's it's one thing um to say that Jesus saves and Jesus uh transforms and Jesus redeems But if our lives don't show that, Craig, that argument is not convincing. That declaration of the gospel, however true, is not convincing. But whenever we are actively engaged in the process of reconciliation, not only are we declaring the gospel, but we are demonstrating the gospel in our lives. And I think that's a much more convincing proclamation of the gospel.
1: Well, in many respects, too, don't we find that message uh, far more impactful in the middle of chaos? And, and I ask that question because, you know, let, let's use the example of the lives of any of us. If we pause for a moment and think, you know, if, if you were doing well, you married the perfect wife or husband, you had the perfect job, you had the perfect amount of money in the bank, you had perfect health, uh, all of it, a lot of people could argue, well, you know, for what do I really need God here, at least on Earth? I mean, yeah, that fire insurance thing on the other side, yeah, that works out okay, but here in the here and now, I'm doing pretty well. But for most of us, our testimony is that in the midst of the pain, the agony, the chaos, when our life seemed to be falling apart uh, right before our eyes, there stepped in God with a message of healing and reconciliation and redemption. And so oftentimes, doesn't God work best in the middle of the chaos, that sometimes we as Christians try to push back against and prevent from happening. And I wonder if sometimes we might accidentally be short-circuiting God's plan, because in the midst of that chaos, doesn't His grace shine the brightest?
0: Well, I, all I can say to that, Craig, is amen and well said. Uh, you know, and in, in, in throughout history, I think not only in our individual lives, which you've just identified, but throughout history, we have found the Christian church thriving Whenever the world around it was in chaos, we tell stories, for example, uh from the second and third century, whenever the great plagues, um, uh, diseases were just just ravaging cities and people were running out of the cities uh, into the rural areas just to keep themselves away from danger and disease, but it was the Christians who ran into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, many times sacrificing their own lives in that process. But it was such a powerful witness that we saw Christianity spread dramatically in the second and third centuries. Uh, even recently in the Ebola epidemic that we saw in Africa, uh, I was amazed at the doctors that were that um, got Ebola and that were put into the quarantine and a couple of them even died as a result of their work there. And whenever I found out about their biographies, one doctor after another, one healthcare worker after another were committed Christians working in that environment because they were motivated by the love of Christ, and love for their neighbor. So this has been the story of the Christian Church. I think it's a story that we sometimes do tend to forget in our prosperity here in America, but uh, it's one that we need to remember.
1: Well, especially since at the core, if we talk about this from the the viewpoint of it being a message of redemption, it suggests that there needs to be something from which one is being redeemed, does it not? I mean, yeah, is I is the is the message of heaven all that powerful? A one, uh, absence the existence of hell. I, I would I would suggest probably not.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the great theologian F.F. F. Bruce Bruce once said that uh, the, an, an understanding of sin is the beginning of salvation, and uh, you know it's important that we do um, understand that we're all sinners in need of a savior, and it's it's. Also, also easy for us Christians to get a little self-righteous about where we sit versus our neighbor. But you know, our neighbor Jesus died for our neighbors, even the one the neighbor that we don't like. You know, just as much as Jesus died for us. So I think that um, you know what you just said there is such a powerful component of this whole uh, understanding of a Christian worldview, which is that we do live in a fallen world, but that God loves us so much that He sent His Son and when we accept Him as Savior and are redeemed from our own sins, we get to participate with Him in this process that uh, the New Testament describes as restoring all things uh, to its former glory.
1: No, I, I wonder out loud if sometimes maybe this is not a, an example of um, spiritual laziness, maybe even a little bit of spiritual haughtiness, um, that sense of reveling in the bunker mentality that, well, everybody's against me, woe is me, look the way that they're attacking me. And so uh, we're doing uh, perhaps a yeoman's job at playing the victim here. Um, and so maybe some people sort of revel in all of that as opposed to saying, look, in the midst of all this turmoil, we've got some work to do. And uh, in the midst of this turmoil, God can do some amazing things in terms of extending that message of redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in and through me. We'll talk about that as our conversation continues. Warren Smith, vice president of World News Group, publisher of World Magazine, author of more than a dozen best-selling books. We're talking about uh, finding God's redemption in the midst of a chaotic world. A brief time out back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Warren Smith, our guest today, Vice President of World News Group. He publishes World Magazine. He's the author of more than 10 best-selling books, including the most newly released, Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan to Change the World Through Everyday People. And maybe one of the big operative words in that book title, Warren, is everyday people. We look, as we intimated at the beginning of our conversation, at the headlines and what's going on in terms of racial unrest economic imbalance social strife all of this taking place it's it's hard obviously uh, and frustrating for a lot of people and then to maybe overwhelming in the sense that people feel as if well you know they'd like to be involved in being an agent of change and and affecting god's plan for uh, redemption reconciliation and restoration but maybe they feel like well as overwhelming as all this is though isn't my work largely going to be for naught and, and and ultimately insignificant
0: well, you know, it's a really great question, and that's why we wanted to tell stories of everyday people, as you said, uh, Craig. You know, uh, John Stone Street, uh, my co-author, uh, works a lot with Eric Metaxas uh, on the Breakpoint Radio uh, program. Eric has written books, uh, uh, biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce, who ended the slave trade uh, in Britain in the 19th century. And it's easy to look at these great heroes of history and say, gee, I'm just little old Warren Smith. You know, I'm not uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, or um, Eric McAxis, even. Uh, so what can I do? And what we discovered in in our searching around for stories and the stories that were reported in the book uh, were stories of of individuals not doing great things but doing small but really important things that had an impact over time. I'll give you a real quick example, and that is look at the life movement in this country, the pro-life movement in this country. Um, Roe v. Wade happened in 1973, 1.3, 1.4 million abortions in this country per year at the peak back a number of years ago but what we what has turned the tide if you today abortions the number of abortions are going down the younger generation is more pro life than its parents that's what Public opinion surveys tell us how did that happen and, and a part of the reason uh, it happened was because of the pregnancy care center movement in this country in thousands of communities all across America, uh, men and women have gotten together just to help other men and women in their local communities uh, the, This movement has sprung up spontaneously it wasn 't uh, a top down movement there wasn 't somebody in washington d c or New York City or wherever saying we we need to go uh, form 2,000 pregnancy care centers all across America. And yet when we look, you know, 20 or 25 years after that movement started, that's exactly what we, what we have. It's, it's Christians imitating other Christians doing good work, which has caused the pregnancy care center movement to spread across this country and has created what we like to call this army of compassion that, that says to the world, you know, Christians are willing to put their money where their mouth is. Yes, they they are engaged in pro-life activism. They are in, maybe engaged even in protests from time to time, but that's not all they do. They are also really caring uh, for men and women in crisis situations every single day in thousands of communities across America. It's made a huge difference in the life uh, issue in this country, and I think— that kind of a movement could make a difference with poverty. It could make a difference with marriage. Uh, and uh, we, the good news is we do have that one model. Uh, the other news, I won't call it bad news, but I'll call it the other news, is that we still have a whole lot of work to do.
1: Well, and you know what strikes me about even that example that you just shared, Warren, um, many people have often heard the story that from space, one of the more spectacular man-made um, edifices or, or uh, items that can be seen from space is the Great Wall of China, and and it is from photographs that perhaps you've seen, an amazing sight to behold from so many miles up, and there you can very clearly make out the wall snaking its way uh, through that section of China. What's ironic about this, uh, that is, having seen the wall, been on it, walked on it, uh, it it is enormous, it is breathtaking, it is an incredible uh, work of of feat to be sure, but you know what it's made up of? Individual small bricks. Yep. Any one of those bricks, by and of themselves, would not even be a speck on planet Earth that could be identified from space. But all of those bricks assembled together... Creates this incredible edifice that has such an Im- impact that it can be seen from space, and it, and it 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 dawns on me, Warren, that much the same is true of our efforts here. That you know, none of us singularly are going to calm racial unrest, or uh, you know, bring about uh, fairness in, in economics, or uh, settle social strife of an, uh, singularly on our own, but together. Doing a lot of small things together can really equal doing something great and tremendous that can have unbelievably large and eternal impact, can't it?
0: Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, the thing that we do doesn't even have to require a lot of time, money, and energy. At the end of Restoring All Things, both John Stone Street and I tell a story out of our own lives to kind of make the point of the book. John tells a remarkable story of when he was a high, in high school, uh, uh, he uh, had it, it really because he'd been cutting up in school. His teacher made him visit an older woman, a sh- what we used to call a shut-in, uh, jo- and uh, as punishment for, for cutting up in class. But so John visited this woman who, at that time, was in uh, probably seemed ancient to John was in her seventies or even early eighties, and they just spent thirty minutes together, maybe an hour together. And John saw this woman a couple of years later, and and John said, "Do you remember who I am?" And the woman said, I have been praying for you every day since we first met. And that just, the woman's praying for him and then telling John that she had been doing that, that she cared enough about him to pray for him every day. John will tell you today that that changed the trajectory of his life. In my own life, I've got a story of my father who served in Korea. He was not a Christian believer whenever he was a 21-year-old infantryman on Heartbreak Ridge in Korea. But a Salvation Army worker whose name my father does not know, whose name is completely lost to history, uh, ministered to my father at a time of great need in his life. My father didn't become a Christian until 10 or 15 years later. But he always remembers the, the act of compassion by this unnamed Salvation Army worker has been, having been a defining experience in his life in leading him ultimately to Christ, which, of course, changed the trajectory of my life and my children's lives. We don't know how God is going to use our availability. Uh, it's not about our ability, as the old saying goes, but it truly is about our availability, our job, our goal. Our responsibility is just to be obedient and to let the Holy Spirit work from there. And I I think that uh, great things will happen. In the Absolutely.
1: World of and, of course, through that act of obedience, Warren, can come uh, God executing on his plan for redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. Warren Smith, again, the book is called... Restoring All Things, God's audacious plan to change the world through everyday people. Newly released by Baker Books and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and also through their website at restoringallthings.org. That's restoringallthings.org. And our thanks to Warren Smith for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.